the reading today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and it's verse 13 to 19. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things whose churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? I want to start off this morning by asking you a wee question. Has there been a moment in your life that totally changed your perspective? Has there been a moment in your life that totally changed your perspective? The, the way you view things, the way you do things, has there been a moment that changed it forever? Let me tell you about a moment for me that totally changed my perspective. So I was coming home at Easter um, it was my second year of university, and I walk in through the door, uh, hand my mum my laundry bag so that the laundry can be done properly for once. Uh, I then look forward to some decent food for a change, which is another thing that students look forward to whenever they go home, and something really strange starts happening. My mum keeps following me around the house. She just keeps following me everywhere. And even whenever I was going to the toilet, like I was 20 years old at the time, and I'd long outgrown the time when I needed my mum to come to the toilet with me. So eventually, I ask her, Mum, what is the crack? Which is an Irish way of saying, what's going on? Why are you following me around the house? And I'll never forget the three words she said. I have cancer and dropped into my arms. Three words changed my perspective forever, changed the Lawler family perspective forever, because the implications of those words came thick and fast over the next few months. You know, still very thankful that my mum is here with us, but our view as a family on life, on everything, our perspective has never been the same. You know, I wonder what it is for you as you think. You know, it's a diagnosis, you know, a rejection letter from university, whenever that first child arrived, whenever the child never arrived. Today's passage is all about something that changes our perspective. We see here, Paul, the Thessalonians, all followers of Jesus have their perspective changed. And as you sit there and think, how, how does our perspective get changed? Well, the Bible, God's word changes our perspective. It creates in us an eternal perspective. God's word creates an eternal perspective 
So Christians, don't just think about temporary things on this earth. They're thinking about eternity, that life will go on forever and ever. So let's read verse 13. Look down in your Bibles, on your phone, wherever you have it. And we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accept it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul, once again, is thanking God for the Thessalonian Christians. And we saw that in chapter 1. He thanked God for the fact that they are following Jesus despite the persecution, despite the hardships of life. But if you look down, you'll see, you'll notice that he is thanking God for a specific aspect of their transformed lives. And that is the way they received the word of God and the way they responded to it. So the first week we looked at Thessalonians, Matt in Acts 17 showed us how Paul and his companions go to this city, Thessalonica, and taught the people about Jesus. And yet, if you look down, you'll notice that Paul says that, he has the audacity actually to say that he, the human speaker, was using divine words, that though he was using human words, the source of his message was from Almighty God. And he says that the Thessalonians recognized that divine origin. They recognized that this wasn't just a man speaking, that God himself was speaking to them. And, do you know, what? even as I say that, you know, if you're a skeptic, if you're not sure about the Christian faith and you're here this morning, firstly, great that you're here. Keep listening. Keep looking into what we're looking at here. But if you are skeptical, you probably hear that and think, human words, divine origin, how can a human being actually think that they're talking on God's behalf? Is that not why the world is so messed up? Is that not the problem? Religion? People thinking that they can speak and act on God's behalf. Or maybe you think, you know, this is either blasphemy, stupidity, delusion, or maybe a mixture of all of those things. Well, I think the best way to illustrate what we as Christians believe about the scriptures is to think about our emails. So say you get an email from your boss. You know, he says, this is what I want done. This is when I want it done. This is how I want it done. And you then take that email and forward it on. You know, the, the message is from the boss. That's the source. That's the authority. But you are the means by which the message gets to the other employees. So they, they don't think, oh, Dave is the one who is saying this. No, they recognize that the authority is coming from the boss. So with Paul... As long as he was proclaiming God's message faithfully, as he received it, it meant that the words were coming from Almighty God. They were coming with all that weight and authority of the one who created the whole universe. Incredible. But, you know, imagine again that email situation. So imagine you've read the boss's email and you think, okay, I like this bit don't like that bit, don't like the way he said that. I I, I would have said this a different way. You do all this rewording, and then you send the email on and say, this is what the boss wants us to do. Well, that's not a faithful transmission of the message, is it? Because you've doctored it, you've paraphrased it, or you've just put your own spin to it, which is why, you know, we have the Bibles out here this morning. Every Sunday, as you come along the church, we want you to see that what we're teaching, what we're preaching, is actually in God's word. That this isn't mere human words. This is the almighty creator speaking to us. 
And think about the implications of that. If these words that we have in front of us are not human words, but from the one who created everything, who knows everything about us, that makes this the most important thing in the world. You know, every time we open our Bible, every time we come to church, we should be bouncing to get a chance to hear from the person who loves us and knows us best. And you know, what Paul is thanking God for is that they recognize this authority. They, they didn't think this was some other religion or craze or some sort of self-help guide. Paul notes that their perspective was changed. They had an eternal perspective. They started living their lives differently. You see here, the word went to work in them. The word went to work in them. You see that in the latter half of verse 13. Look down with me. But as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believed. So they recognized the source. They recognized the authority. And they responded accordingly. This morning, as we said here, I wonder how you receive God's word. I wonder if you recognize the source, the authority. You know, this past week, I saw something funny on the internet. Not unusual. But um, as I was on the internet, I saw this thing. If anyone here has ever received a rejection letter from a university, from work, wherever it may be, you'll know that they send out an email that sounds very nice, very flattering in many ways. You know, we regret to inform you that because of significant quality candidates, we regretfully tell you blah, blah, blah. And I saw something really funny this week because you have to accept that rejection, don't you? Because they have all the power, all the authority in that situation. But here's the, the funny thing that I came across uh, from a lady called Siobhan O'Dell. So she was rejected um, by a university and she writes back to them. Let me read you. It's definitely on the screen because I can hear chuckles. Dear Duke University Administrations, thank you for your rejection letter of March 26, 2015. After careful consideration, I regret to inform you that I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me admission into the fall 2015 freshman class at Duke. This year, I've been fortunate enough to receive rejection letters from the best and brightest universities in the country. With a pool of letters so diverse and accomplished, I was unable to accept rejection letters. I would have been only I would have been able to only several years ago. Despite Duke's outstanding success in rejecting previous applicants, you simply did not meet my qualifications. Therefore, I will be attending Duke University 2015 freshman class. I look forward to seeing you then. Siobhan O'Dell, completely brilliant, right? You know, Siobhan in this situation is acting as though she has the same authority as university. You know, thanks, thanks for your rejection, but actually I fancy coming. I don't really care. You know, I wonder this morning, as you hear God's word, who are you more like, the Thessalonians or Siobhan? Th thanks, Lord. I know you say this in your word, but actually I fancy it, so I'm going to do it. Or are you like the Thessalonians? Do you recognize the authority, respond in obedience gladly, and let the word do the work? Do you allow your perspective to be changed and transformed? Because the word of God does the work of God. And we see in our passage the three implications of this eternal perspective. The first implication is that if you have an eternal perspective, you can endure suffering. Let me read you verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. 
you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. So the way that Paul encourages these Thessalonian believers is that he says, your suffering is not uncommon. The suffering that you're going through is a shared experience by all faithful churches, which means that they are not alone. They are not alone in their trials, which means we as a church are not alone. Why can I say that so confidently? Look down at the verse. God's churches in Judea, God's church we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, God's church in Thessalonica, all churches everywhere are in Christ Jesus. So this morning, as we gather here, we are in Christ Jesus in Pompano. The church in Iran, in Christ Jesus, in Australia, in America, in Russia, everywhere. This is Paul's eternal perspective. You know, he doesn't just see the temporariness that this is just something we do on Sunday. He says, one day in heaven, in glory, there will be one united church worshiping Jesus forever. You know, we come to church and we think, oh yeah, just another Sunday. But Paul says, one day, faith will be sight and we will be in glory together. Does that not thrill your heart? This is temporary. Forever and ever, we will be with all Christians forever. But even as I say that, you think, if Jesus is king, if one day we are going to be in heaven with him, if he loves us so much, why on earth does he allow us to suffer? Why on earth does he allow us to suffer if he loves us so much? I suppose what we need to remember is that Jesus came as a suffering servant, which means his people imitate him, the suffering servant king. So the Thessalonian church The fact that they are enduring the suffering is a sign that they are faithfully following their king. It's it's a sign of their eternal perspective. What do I mean by that? Anytime you suffer pain or persecution in this life, you immediately, well, I definitely do, immediately think, this is pointless. This is wrong. Why is this happening to you? This is so unfair. And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that no suffering is meaningless, that God is making you more and more ready for heaven with each passing day. As Christians, we know that all pain is temporary. All pain is temporary and eternal comfort is on the horizon. And the reason why this is really important to remember is because of what Paul writes here. Look at the source of the Thessalonians' suffering. Look down at verse 14 again. Uh, But you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people. You suffered from your own people, which means in this life, those who you are closest to relationally and locationally are probably the ones who will cause you to suffer most for the gospel. That's a really hard message to, to think about. You know, as the Thessalonian Christians lived where they were, And as their friends, family, neighbors turned on them, they had to think, since they were humans, maybe we've got this wrong. Maybe we need to soften this message a little bit and make it just a wee bit more palatable to the world around us. Paul says, no, stand firm. Stand firm. And why should you stand firm? Because you're imitating other churches. And actually, that idea of imitation is really helpful. Whenever you look around and you see other people suffering awfully for their faith, you can look at them and think, 
gosh, one day when suffering comes my way, I want to learn from them. I want to live as they live. I want to stand firm in the face of suffering. I want to imitate them as they imitate Christ. So an eternal perspective means that we can endure suffering because we're not in it alone. We are in Christ Jesus. We can endure suffering because we know something better awaits. And we can know that we can endure suffering because we know our endurance is encouraging other people. So that's the first sort of implication of this eternal perspective. Here's the second one. An eternal perspective means that there are consequences for rejecting Jesus. Let's read from verse 15. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. You know, one of the things I do whenever I come to prepare a passage is I'll read through it and write a little S or a little B beside different things. So an S stands for a shocker which is something that surprises me or is interesting or exciting. And and the B stands for a blocker. You know, something that is challenging, difficult, might be a block, an obstacle from people coming to know more about Jesus. And let's be honest, this is a whopper of a blocker. Because as you read it, as you read it, this this seems awful, doesn't it? Paul is an anti-Semitic. He obviously hates the Jews. He's completely intolerant. You know, This is why awful things happen to the Jews, because of stuff like this in the Bible. It's just not a good look, is it? So what do we do about this? Well, as ever, whenever we read stuff like this, we need to consider the bigger picture, the broader context. Here's the reason why. Here's an example. Um, Say on March 13th, Sunday, March 13th, uh, you bring a friend along to church who has never been to church before, has never met before. That would be a great thing to do, wouldn't it? But anyway, you've brought them along, and after the service, um, I'm standing there talking to someone, and your friend overhears me saying, I hate the English. I hate the English. And, you know, your friend after the service might be like, gosh, that that pastor of yours seems pretty hateful, pretty anti-English, pretty intolerant. What on earth is he doing in church? But hopefully what you would do to your friend is give some context. You'd say, Okay, here's a few things you should know about Dave. He's lived in England for two years, so obviously he has some sort of tolerance for them. You know, he's also lived with an English family for six months and their little children, and he didn't, you know, chuck the children out because they're English. You know, very helpfully as well, you might say, well, actually, his wife is English, so obviously he doesn't hate English people that much. You know, also, one of his best friends is English, and perhaps the most helpful bit of context you could give them is that the previous day... Ireland will have played England in rugby. And that's probably the context in which I'm saying, I hate the English if they've beaten my rugby team. So why have I done all that? Context is important to any verse that you read. So let's try to understand Paul's words in light of this bigger picture. So if you have your Bibles, flick back to Acts 17. Acts 17, where where we all started in Thessalonians. So we, we see in Acts 17 that Paul and his companions come to Thessalonica, and they go to a Jewish synagogue. And that was his custom. And Paul went into the synagogue 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So Paul, whenever he goes to any city, as was his habit, the first thing he does is go to Jewish people. And just as a reminder, the message of Jesus, the gospel, is a saving message. It, it, it saves people from God's eternal wrath. And the first people he goes to are Jewish people. So from that angle, okay, not that anti-Semitic because he obviously wants the Jews to believe. But let's carry on and look at verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So the Jews in Thessalonica drove Paul and his companions out but, but they weren't, weren't content with that. They weren't just, you know, apathetic, like, oh, we don't like this message. They were completely antagonistic because look down to verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So Paul feels very strongly because the Jews rejecting this message, they're not just content to stop it in Thessalonica. They want to stop it everywhere. Paul's eternal perspective says, this is the worst thing that can happen. The gospel not going out is the most catastrophic thing that could happen, which is why he feels so strongly about this. So we've noted the context. Next thing that Paul highlights is a pattern. Look down at verse 15 with me. Those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. It's important to note that the Romans, crucifixion was a Roman punishment. So it was the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross, but the Jews were the ones who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. But I don't think the Jews who were in Thessalonica or in Judea necessarily were the ones who killed the Lord Jesus. You know, maybe they might have been in Jerusalem when Jesus died, but that's quite unlikely. What Paul is highlighting is a pattern that had become typical of the Jewish nation, of God's chosen people, that they consistently rejected God's messengers. We saw that, didn't we, in Malachi? They did not like the message that was coming to them. And just in case you think, Oh, this is just Paul being miserable. But actually, Jesus, in Luke chapter 11, verse 47, says that the Jewish people had a pattern of rejecting God's messengers. So this isn't just a Paul thing. This is a Jesus thing, which in some ways makes it more difficult, doesn't it? But the message time and again that the prophets, that Jesus, that Paul said to these Jewish people was that they were, they were living in a way that was completely opposed to what God wanted them to do. And they thought that their special status of being a Jew was enough. You know, and it's, it's helpful just to pause here for a moment because the people of God, the Jews who had heard the scriptures their whole life, growing up, going along to festivities and services and all sorts of things, were the ones who rejected Jesus, which, you know, for some of us, this is really painful to hear. But often it's the people maybe our children, who come along every Sunday to church become the most hardened to the gospel. And, you know, that breaks our heart, doesn't it? So we've, we've got to pray. We've really got to pray, don't we? But as Paul sort of notes this pattern of the Jewish people's rebellion, disobedience, he then points out that there are consequences. Look down at verse 15. 
God is displeased with the Jews. Now, helpfully, broader context again, in Romans we see that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. But it's still a powerful thing to consider that God is displeased because Abraham, the the means by which all the nations would be blessed, all of a sudden don't want the nations to be blessed. You know, they're stopping this message from getting out and that is displeasing to God, which I think, you know, this is just me reflecting personally. I think I need to hear that, that those things that stop the message getting out are displeasing to God. You know, as we've done this sort of passion for life stuff, I've noticed that God wants to deal in me my apathy, my fear, my hesitancy to share the good news of Jesus. And the good news is he wants to deal with that. He doesn't say, Dave, you rubbish, get out of here. He wants to work in us. But look, we've already noted that they're displeasing God. And he uses a really helpful image here. Whenever they displease God, they heap up their sins. You know, sins, bad things that they do. And that's quite a striking image, isn't it? That there are real consequences for sin. So imagine, I've got a bit of rubbish here. Imagine if every time you had a wee bit of rubbish, you just chucked it over your shoulder. I'll get it later. Um, but imagine, you know, at your house, you just chucked it out into the garden. You know, initially, you might not notice it. Maybe if you're just, you know, you don't want to see it. So you don't notice, oh, there's some litter there. But, you know, if you do that every single day, all the time, again and again, chucking it over your shoulder, over your shoulder, eventually it would pile so high that you couldn't miss it, could you? You know, it would affect you. It would affect your family. It would affect your neighbors. It would affect your community because it would stink. You know, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try to sort of bury it, push it under the carpet, show up the church looking really nice, having it all together, We may succeed for a time, but our sins will find us out. They will pile too high, and one day it'll be revealed. And that's that's the comforting here, isn't it? One day there will be justice done for those who displease God. You know, this past week I was talking to someone in the congregation, and we're saying about, as you watch the news, the news just makes you despair, doesn't it? But as you watch the news and you see people, you know, Time after time, you know, it just feels like their sin is piling up behind them and they're not taking any responsibility for it. And you just think, this is so unfair. This is so unfair that there's no justice. But the good news is, as we read this passage, is that we can rest in the fact that justice will be done. But even as I say that, that sounds really brutal in some ways because that makes it sound like we're gleeful at the fact that people will suffer God's wrath. But as we watch and think, he is not getting the justice he deserves. Just stop and think, I deserve the justice, and I get mercy instead. How wonderful is that? You know, the pile of sin that has piled up behind me my whole life is dealt with forever. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Justice will be done, and for the Christian, justice has been done when it fell on the Lord Jesus, which I think is what verse 16 is all about. The wrath of God has come upon the Jewish nation at last. So what does Paul mean here? You know, some, some might say, uh, possible options from commentators say, you know, maybe this is about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I find this, I think the way John Stott, Stott translates this is very insightful. The wrath is right over their heads. The wrath is right over their heads. So imagine a rain cloud right over you. There's no escaping. 
You can't get away from it. You can run your whole life. You can pile those sins up. You cannot escape it. And since we as Christians believe it to be true, so often I live my life like I don't believe that's true to my ultimate shame. But since we believe this is true, the last fruit, the last implication of an eternal perspective is this. An eternal perspective means that people really matter. People matter. Let me read to you. Uh, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul again reminds the Thessalonians that he really, deeply loves and cares for them. You know, he didn't leave on a whim. He was torn away from him. We saw last week, didn't we, about the, the, the parental language of a mother and a father. And if you look down, you see this word, orphaned. That's a very strong word, isn't it? It communicates something of his heart whenever he left Thessalonica. You know, deep longing, like that emotion, a parent for a child, like a, a child that has lost a parent. Amy and I, the other week, watched uh, the latest Disney film, Encanto, Enchanto, Encanto. Encanto. And uh, I suppose anytime you watch a Disney movie, you know, disclaimer, spoiler, but you should all know this by now. But anytime you watch a Disney movie, <laughs> there's always something awful that happens to parents. Like always. You know, you think of uh, Bambi or Simba or Nemo, and you're just like, no, you know, that orphan feeling in your heart. And that's that emotion, you know, whenever you think of Bambi or Nemo or anything, that is the kind of emotion that Paul feels not being with his brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. Crazy. Something mental, right? You know, it's reflecting, you know, whenever, whenever I miss a life group or miss a prayer meeting or miss church on Sunday, do I feel like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm not there. I can't believe I'm not with my brothers and sisters. Or is it, oh, really glad for a night in. You know, I'm sure... I just confess that as the pastor of a church. There's no hope now. Um, But I'm sure, you know, last year on Zoom, you know, we experienced that, didn't we? Longing to be together. But since we've come back, you know, has it waned a bit? This is why we need God's word, isn't it? Because it smacks me in my face and says, you are lacking an eternal perspective. You think far too much about temporary comfort and pleasure, Steve. You know, as Paul has just said, I long to be with you. He then goes on to say why he isn't back there with them. He says that there was an obstacle in the way, which once again is part of Paul's eternal perspective. He, he says, Satan blocked our way in verse 18. You know, he recognizes that there is an enemy at work. The devil, the adversary, yes, Christians believe this. We believe it makes sense of the broken world that we live in. But the adversary is stopping him from returning to the Thessalonians. And I think this is linked to what Paul was saying previously. The opposition that he and the Thessalonians were facing, he didn't just see this as, you know, people, but he sees it as a struggle against the evil powers of this dark world, which Calvin sort of helpfully notes this. Whenever the wicked abuse us, 
They fight under Satan's banner and are his instruments for harassing us. So in a paternal perspective, it means we don't just see, you know, the ordinary signs of opposition. We see it as we're in a battle, a real deep battle for people's souls who are under the oppressive rule of the devil. You know, whenever we, we read this, whenever we view people like this, we get an understanding of why Paul uses such strong emotive language when he describes the Thessalonians. You know, if you look down, hope, joy, glory, crown. Those are massive words to say about other human beings, isn't it? Like he says this about the Thessalonian Christians. That, that almost seems like idolatry, doesn't it? Surely Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope, joy, glory, and crown of Paul. I think, again, what a commentator said really helped me here. The Thessalonians were the fruit of Paul's preaching of the cross. So Paul didn't just simply think of the Thessalonians as people, but those who, who were spiritually dead and are now alive because of Jesus. But Paul is saying, you men and women at Thessalonica, you have trusted in this message just like me. You have been rescued by God just like me. And one day you will stand with me before him. And you'll have absolutely no time for me because you'll be worshiping and adoring him forever. And isn't it amazing? Paul is so certain. Paul is so certain that he's going to see Jesus one day. Like there's no doubt in his mind that he's going to be there and the Thessalonians are going to be there with him. Unbelievable. Imagine if we live with that absolute certainty that we are going to glory, that we're going home one day. Because if Paul was encouraged by the Thessalonians and their lives now, he knows that the emotion he'll feel in the future is indescribable. This language feels a bit strong, doesn't it? You know, we, we don't often look around people in the church or, or our friends and think, you are my hope, joy, glory crown, do we? It, it feels over the top. And as I read this, I think my desire, my love for people is so up and down. It just waxes and wanes. You know, right now, Think about the people in your life who you would long to be in heaven with you one day. You, you can think, you know, ones who are already Christians, but you can think of the ones who are wandering, the, the wayward, the lost people, and think to yourself, you are my hope, my joy, my glory, my crown. You know, for me, I think of this and think, oh, Will Thurlow, all those times eating fajitas together, all those times looking at the Bible, and you're so close and you, didn't, you, you turned away. You're my hope. I long to see you there one day. I long to, to pray for you, to see you again, to get you home to glory. Big Ben, you're still giant, even in heaven. But I really, really want to see you there. I long to have you there because you are my joy, my glory, my crown. You know, Richard, my neighbor who drives me crazy sometimes because he always wants to chat. Isn't it amazing? you who are so opposed to the gospel, are here and we're worshiping Jesus together. Oh, why is it that my affection runs cold so quickly? Why is it it just fades away? Why do I lose this eternal perspective? You know, because that is the danger as we do this passion for life stuff. You know, three months, tick, okay, we're good at evangelism. And then it just fades away. May we, like Paul, let the, the word do its work 
And may we have an eternal perspective so that people's eternity would be changed. Eternity changed with Jesus forever. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our glory. That is our crown. Not that we may be glorified, but that Jesus would get all the glory. Is that not what we long to see in our community? Is that not what we long to see in our friends, in our family, in our lives? Lives that submit to the authority of God's word and live in obedience no matter what suffering, persecution, hardship that comes our way. Oh Lord, make us like this. Let me pray.